Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts and Station Hill Press. If you want to reach us, email bc at stationhill.org. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network. We're live on WCAA and on the Pacifica Radio Network. We're available on most podcast venues. And that's all I got. Enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So here we are for another session of Baffling Combustions, and my name is Sam Truitt. I am Sparrow. And I'm Andrew McCarran. And we're here with Matthew Morse, who in this series that we've been doing is uh, going to give us our topic for today. Matthew Morse is a fan of baffling combustions. I think that's fair to say. Would you say, Matthew, that you're a uh, advocate of our... Do you have the courage to deny it? I very much so. I listened to most of the episodes. I, I love the combination of... Uh of freeform scholarship and psychology and knowledge of spirituality, religions, and just life experience, the way it all comes together and the, the chemistry you guys have. I think I enjoy, I enjoy it. Hallelujah. Wow. That's what we're looking at. What a yeah. tribute. So Matthew is, is, is my friend. We met in 1991 in the San Francisco Public Library in the poetry section. Wow. That's true. That's true. We were saving some money and, and uh, checking out books for free. Yeah. yeah. And he and I became fast friends, you know, almost instantaneously. Hmm. He introduced me to Ashtengar Yoga. Wow. And then subsequently we took a trip down to Mexico and then subsequently paved the way for my introduction to Ati Yoga. And wow. yeah. So we've remained friends for um, circa, hold your breath, 30 oh. years. <laughs> oh, yeah. Half your life. Exactly half your life, Sam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when I moved to New York in 94, uh, Matthew came and we lived on West 35th Street and had many, you know, galvanizing adventures, of course, naturally. <laughs> and then... Uh, you know, Matthew continued to go on into publishing. He started a watch magazine for the Hearst Corporation, very successful, then started another watch magazine, became a connoisseur of the, of the, of time via this, um, um, clock pieces that we carry on our wrists, principally, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, Matthew had kids, you know, married, did all those things. And then I guess about five years ago, he entered a program to become 
a spiritual uh, minister, advisor, wow. minister, uh, got a degree in psychology, did oh. years of end-of-life counseling, that is, helping people to die, and is now, I guess, completing your master's degree in education and pastoral services, I think is the term. Is that correct, Matthew? Well, it's uh, I'm, I completed my master's in in uh, in uh, pastoral mental health counseling, and currently I'm working as a a grief counselor, a bereavement counselor for a hospice in New York City. So I work Ooh. I work on the other side of death. I work with the survivors and I help them uh, work through their sadness and refer them to sources if they need. Yes, yeah, so it's all very human. So I've worked on both sides with the dying past patient and with the families afterwards. Huh. Matthew, did you did you feel as though I left anything out? I mean, I just wanted to give a brief survey. He's from the Northwest. He's a, yeah, he's also a product of St. John's in part, St. John's College, the Great Books Program. Yes, yes, I, my, I grew up in uh, two places, suburban St. Louis and then Washington State in the Olympia and Tacoma. So I was always in these uh, second-rate cities until I came to to New York, and now I'm I've been in New York now for uh, uh, pushing thirty years. Yeah, yeah, and so you found yourself to baffling combustions and to this moment at which you're going to drop the puck and we're going to bat it around. Are you ready? Yeah. <laughs> I'm ready anyway. I, I feel is, ready. It's a puck, an expansive puck, slightly different though, and that the color, the word, the subject is blue, B-L-U-E. Wow. And, uh, I just, you guys are such polymaths and, and wow. can approach things from so many angles. Huh. Going back into the uh, the word roots and the permutations and the mm. use and abuse of the color blue in the arts, poetries and paintings, mm. film, mm. and uh, also nature and science. I think it's a it, I, it's a mm. color means a lot to me, and I'd like to, I, I'm sure I would gain by your uh, your foray mm. into the uh, investigation of blue. Hmm. Yeah. Wow, sounds interesting. Wow, an infinitely fungible uh, word. Yeah, beautiful, man. Thank you so much, Matthew. Well, thank you. I look forward to hearing what you guys come up with. I'll, uh, I, I will wait. I'll be <laughs> waiting for, uh, and I'm sure I'll, I'll, you know, get some new info, some new insights from it. So, all right. Thank mm -hmm. you for inviting me. Thank you. Oh yeah, much love, Matthew, and uh, we'll circle back on this. I'll, I'll send you the link when it's live. Mm -hmm. All right, and en enjoy your minds and and your friendship. Thank you again. Beautiful. Thank you. What, what an interesting guy. Oh yeah, he's really realized. In fact, I want to speak with him at some point. Yeah. <laughs> I just well, want I do to say I remember from middle school, seventh grade. My science teacher at the first day of school saying, have you ever wondered why the sky was blue? <laughs> have you ever wondered why the shower curtain billows inward when you're taking a shower? Well, you're ah. in a place. But then he never proceeded to answer I, <laughs> either of those. Or the question. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm, I'm still waiting. But the, the, the question as to why the sky is blue came back to mind. See? Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about that recently because, uh, you know, I live in the Catskills 
and the winter is uh, so gray. The sky, as you know, Andrew, is overcast for weeks. And then one day it'll happen, you know, in a February, one corner of the sky will will peak out. One corner of the actual real sky will peak out from the clouds. And you'll see this incredible, splendid, cerulean blue. And you'll realize, you know, actually the sky is always blue. It's really blue. It's just uh, the clouds hide it. You know, it's a, uh-huh. almost a mystical idea in a way. And then I was right. gonna, I was writing this down, or I was about to write it down, and I thought, yeah, I'm going to look up why is the sky blue. And it has something to do with the atmosphere bends the rays of light, and the color that results is blue, but I don't really know. I don't I really it's understand. because um, as sunlight of all colors, so that would be what, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and violet, passes through the air, the blue part causes um, charged particles to oscillate faster than the red part. So more of the sunlight in the atmosphere is blue than violet. And our eyes, it has something to do with the eyes as well. Our eyes are more sensitive to blue light than to violet light, so the sky appears blue. I mean, it's not really blue? But it's not really blue. That's how it appears to um, us on an ocular level. Yeah, we have rods and cones. We have a limited number of those. But if we were to see things as they really are, such as this certain kind of um, slug-like form that lives uh, in the ocean that has like 28 cones, we would see things as they are, which is as a uh, rainbow. You know, everything would look psychedelic, I believe, is my understanding. Yeah. The derivation of the word blue, as I recall, is literally um, sky colored. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's appropriate that we started with, um, you know, our sort of view screen to what we used to call heaven, you know, Mm. and also remembering that, of course, in in the day, the stars are also ever present. You know, they're still burning out there. And we just can't see them because we see whatever the color of the sky is. I guess today it's, for me, it's gray with snow coming down. There's snow falling. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we're entering, I guess we're in the second week of March. Yeah. Still in winter. Yeah. Here there's no snow. You know, I'm like maybe eight miles from Sam. The snow is not falling here at the moment funny that that is i mean i i thought that the sky was blue because the atmosphere absorbs every band of light except blue maybe that's the same thing you're saying andrew i don't know i think neither of us perhaps really understand the physics of light that's the truth yeah there was a time when i was living in uh, teaneck new jersey that i got I i think i mentioned this already I got Newton's book on optics out of the library and I would just like gaze, I would just sort of look at it and sort of read it. But it made me realize that I was not on a level to understand even, it's kind of embarrassing. You realize, wow, like 17th century physics is too much for me. Like I'm like 400 years behind science and my ability to understand the basics of optics. 
I need to point out right now that both of you are dressed in blue. Yeah, that's true. Both of you and your grid screens are predominantly blue. Maybe uh-huh. we were unconsciously preparing for this moment. Yeah, for this moment to arise or to begin. I think that's a quotation from the Beatles. Exactly. This moment, yeah, this we moment to arise. For this moment to arrive. Black yeah, almost fly. just like a moment to segue into our antipathy and and you know downright detestation of the Beatles. <laughs> well, I've been talking to uh, Sam about my. I have this idea to do a kind of a one man show about how much I hate the Beatles. Uh, and there's another. Isn't there a line from the Beatles because the sky is blue? Be, yeah, because turns me on. the sky is blue, it turns me uh, I think on. It is on. It turns me on. What, what kind of nonsense is that? Is that right? That because the sky is blue, it turns me on? That doesn't make any sense. Maybe it's because the sky is high, it turns me on? That makes slightly more sense. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, blue... You know, rhymes with you, <laughs> rhymes with new. I have a dog named Blue. Sometimes wow. I call him Azul. That's Spanish for blue. And his real name is... Uh, Virgil. Virgil, yes. Couldn't yeah. remember it. I knew he was the guy yeah. that led Dante through the inferno. Yeah. I have the Beatle lyric. Oh, it's, thanks. Because the world is round, it turns me on. And oh. then... In a subsequent verse, because the sky is blue, it makes me cry. Ah, yes. Oh, Lord have mercy. Thank you. My God, it's embarrassing because I, you know, I study the Beatles in order to write this book about how much I hate them. So it's embarrassing to me that I conflated two of their perhaps most inane lyrics. (laughs) And what is that song? It's called Because, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Oh, yeah. It's part of that famous uh what do you call it um collage melody medley on uh on uh, abbey road yeah yes, abbey road right it, yeah. it was written by john lennon really uh, and recorded in 1969 it sounds so paul mccartney-ish this is one of the things like how, that i'm kind of how? involved with in my beatles hating book is uh Sort of defending McCartney, like I feel like because McCartney outlived Lennon by you know forty years, and he a little bit you know history is kind of written by the victors or survivors. He you know, or no, or maybe because people have come to see how ridiculous he is, you know, people kind of idealize Lennon as the great genius of the Beatles. And everything sentimental they attribute to to Paul, and everything brilliant they uh, and incisive and breakthrough avant-garde they attribute to John. But in fact, John wrote lots of dumb songs too, and uh, McCartney wrote some of the weirder songs, some of those songs that uh, made uh, Charles Manson go around killing people. Oh, like Helter Skelter. Hell, he wrote. There's uh, Charles Manson killed people for three reasons because. The Beatles were sending him secret messages, as they were sending all of us secret messages at the time, in the White Album. Uh, And the three songs were Little Piggies, um, Blackbird, 
that we just quoted, and um, uh, Helter Skelter. And out of that, he pieced together this theory that the revolution was revolution and race war was imminent. Wow. I thought Blackbird, there was, a, is it Blackbird we were? I thought that Blackbird's singing in the dead of night. Take these and broken, broken wings. wings. And fly, fly so high. No, it's fly We've so high. We've all been waiting not, for this. Right. <laughs> I think it's you and to I. Begin, to begin <laughs> to arrive. Because arrive sort of rhymes with uh, fly. <laughs> Well, getting back uh-huh. to blue, getting back to blue, the first yeah. thing that comes to mind for me is the blues, is the uh, the blue note, the note of dissonance, mm-hmm. um, and extending that to a, a mood state, the blues, feeling blue, feeling down, feeling melancholic, which um, I'm assuming emerges out of the musical form, the blues. I think about the appearance of blue as a word, in my own lexicon, as um, I guess I'm having to do most often with a mood state or the uh, the musical genre, the blues. Yeah, the first, I believe, instance of the word blue applied adjectivally in the sense of a kind of human constellation of experience, I think was from Thomas Carlyle. Carlisle, really? <laughs> yeah, in the mid-19th century. And its original application was to signify that which is lewd or indecent. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's why you get things like the blue laws. And and the actual attribution for why blue would be associated with these things is is unclear. I wonder if it goes back to something like the anatomy of melancholy, you know, to be blue, to be also, um, I guess, you know, sad. You know, that is, French, uh, famous French proverb, uh, something like, après l'amour, tous les animaux sont tristes. Uh, you know, after sex, all animals are sad. So, you know, maybe like the sadness that you have, the post what is that word? Coital sadness is somehow associated with with blueness. Also, the blue pencil. Uh huh. Yeah. I mean, I gotta say, after coitus, I don't feel sad, and I don't. <laughs> and I also, I was reflecting on this recently. I also don't light a cigarette. Really? Like a lot of times, particularly the French, they uh, will uh-huh. have. Um, you know, passed into a state of dilemma, you know, and then they'll smoke a cigarette. I have often thought that I do feel a little sad, but I, I'm so suggestible that I feel like because I've heard that proverb for many years, I think I'm supposed to feel sad, and that's why I do. I know, actually, after I have sex, I feel super talkative, if that's a feeling. Hmm. But maybe it's me fighting off the sadness by constant jabbering yeah i feel sometimes a bit like tired yes yeah sleepy even sleep yeah even more than anything else yeah picasso's blue period was is is that i know he was painting blue canvases but just was that prompted by some kind of depression is is that is the blue period also a reference to 
a period in the painter's life. During I mean, those those paintings, down. you know, I mean, I fairly recently was listening to some book on tape. What was it called? I think it was called The Painting That Shocked the World. Did I mention it here? About, uh, you know, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, you know, uh, and... Mm-hmm. And so it talked a lot about the pink period and the blue period. I think part of it is he didn't have enough money to buy a lot of different paints. He could only mm-hmm. afford a few colors. But those blue pa- period paintings are very sad. Yes, whether, they are. Whether Picasso was sad, I'm not sure. I think he wasn't, first of all. I think he was poor. He was really, really poor. Yeah. And Spanish and living in a place where it wasn't very popular to be Spanish. Yeah. I mean, um, one thing I would I would want to point out is that my wife, Kimberly, she is descended of a guy named Dr. Dippel, um, Dippel, a German who is not only the basis for Dr. Frankenstein, (laughs) namely, yeah, namely, he in some esoteric extension of alchemy was actually doing experiments to bring the dead back to life. And he did visit, um, you know, recently buried people and exhume them and then, you know, work with them to try to, um, you know, bring them back into animation. But famously, he invented what's called Prussian blue. Wow. Yeah. Which prior to that, discovery and i guess the mid 19th early 19th century blue was a super duper expensive color that you would derive from lapis lazuli or there was some complicated scene and only um you know only people who could afford it could paint with blue but prussian Mm. blue was a cheap means by which to make this color so she's connected to this Obviously, uh, pretty signatory uh, European cat mm. in the supernatural realms. And blue can refer to a corpse. I think, like, your lips turn blue when you're dead. Maybe also because they refrigerate you, typically. But, I mean, the connection between exhuming corpse and inventing blue, one could argue that there's a kind of consistency, a fascination with death. Yeah, yeah, but I did just open my dictionary. I don't know if you see it here. The American uh-huh. Dictionary of the English Language. And yeah. I found the derivation of blue without yeah. having to go on Wikipedia. It comes from the proto-Sanskrit, uh, you know, phoneme or whatever you call it. Little word, bell, bell. Maybe an aspirin age. Bell, bell. Uh, bell. Important derivatives are blue, bleach, bleak, blaze, blemish, blind, blend, blonde, blank, blanket, blush, black, fragrant, and flame. And it means something like to shine, flash, burn, shining Uh, white, and various bright colors. Maybe referring to uh, if you're staring at a fire... You know, even the fire in your uh, stove is kind of bluish. Maybe that's what the ancient proto-sense yeah. 
dudes. No? Yeah, 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 yeah. I do remember <laughs> that blue from the Sanskrit does mean to shine. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's, it means means something, maybe. Yeah, and I think that blue is also, for me, aside from what you mentioned, Andrew, the blues, which we kind of, I think, need to go a little yeah. deeper on. Um, you know, I do associate blue with song because of its association with sky and with air. Mm. You know, that, that song is a sonic medium that mm. you know, this I, I have to think about exists or can only exist in air i'm not sure that's true it can exist oh, yeah, it could be. well no i think you can in its enactment you know you can write down a song but its enactment i think has to occur in air i mean i went to this show at mass mocha of uh, laurie anderson and uh the, one of the you know pieces in the show it's a table you put your elbows on these spots on the table. You put your fingers in your ear and you hear music. You hear uh, good old Laurie Anderson singing or some kind of, I forget what the music was. In other words, it's transmitted directly through your body. No air. Just through your elbows, oh. into your fingers, into your wow. ears. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think our natural state is one, is, is song. Hmm. You know, that this is the, in other words, you know, a kind of metaphor, but nevertheless, that feeling of animation that we don't acknowledge perhaps enough hmm. is, a, is a song state. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, perhaps. Well, you think a little baby's talking, you know, the, uh, the kind of babbling that a, a little child does is... It's as much song as it is speech, one could argue. Or perhaps also, Sparrow, your speech in the post-coital glow. <laughs> is a song like I'm singing a kind of mating song, post-mating song. A celebration, yeah, praise. Yeah. I understand that there are three things that keep us happy. <laughs> one is sleep. The other mm. is praise. And the mm. third is helping other people. Wow. Where did you hear that? I don't know. I heard it recently. You know, I these things come to me over the Internet. And mm. I think I, I picked it up through an email that was sent, <laughs> I think, from something called Brain Pickings. <laughs> yeah. Right. A very Internet-style yeah. phrase. You know, you know what it occurred to me as we were speaking? Can I share something? Yes. You'll have yeah. to excuse the, I think it was in Alabama when I was visiting my brother last, which was a while ago, maybe even a year before the pandemic. He's in Huntsville, mm -hmm. Alabama. And we were driving around that county and it was Sunday and mm -hmm. alcohol was prohibited, mm. sold. And my brother referred to that as a blue law. He said, oh, that's a blue law. Yeah. A blue law that prohibits Sunday alcohol sales. Yeah. Have you heard of that before, the blue law? Well, I think, I think that it might pick up from that original or, you know, sense, you know, from the 1840s, from Carlisle, that sense of the lewd or indecent. Um, well, I just I don't know what the derivation of blue laws is. It's, 
you know, I wonder if there's a slightly racist overtone to it, because the blues were already extant when blue laws started to emerge. I don't know. Well, I did a little huh. search, and um, apparently um, the Blue Devils is a 17th century British uh-huh. expression, um, again, the Blue Devils, for the intense visual hallucinations that oh. come alcohol withdrawal. Uh-huh. were referred to as the Blue Devils. And it huh. was shortened over time to the blue, and that can huh. mean a state of agitation or depression. In the early 19th century, the 1800s, blue was slang for drunk. Huh. This Interesting. Specific, and that's how it uh, apparently, according to the um, Huffington Post, which is the article I just scanned, that's um, how it was uh, um, associated with um, blues music, through the uh, oh. alcohol. In other words, that blues is music you play while you're drinking or in a in a bar or something that's right that's right yeah following on this this sort of pulling of dictionary i um have beside my desk the dictionary of american slang edited by wentworth or compiled by wentworth and flexner and blue features prominently in the corpus of slang terms um, some of those things that we've spoken of, also blue gags, which are jokes in questionable taste. Oh yeah, yeah. Blue, blue material. Yeah, blue material. Blue balls. Ah. Oh yeah. We, need, we don't. I don't think we need to uh, to explain what blue balls are. I can. And do then um, the blue blue belly. Refers to a Union soldier. Blue belly. Oh, because they wore blue outfits. I guess. Yeah. Blue. Uh, there's hmm. blue blue book that is a sort of an academic. You know, the blue book. Blue book uh, is like a guide, a sort of compendium of something or, or other. No, it's a te- I, I, take a test in a blue book, right? This is a blue book exam. You're given quite literally a blue book. I, yeah. And then the other, the other one is any list or dictionary. For example, a dictionary of the New Orleans Tenderloin, printed for the convenience of tourists and on sale at Storyville bars for 25 cents. We're still and talking they, about a blue book? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. This is a compendium for tourists in the, in New Orleans. And carried as from every madame of reputation. Oh. Yeah. It, a list of, I, a yeah. list of every prostitute or every, every reputable prostitute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every madame of reputation. And then hmm. blue-eyed means to be drunk, but also can mean gullible or unworldly. Which, <clears throat> you know, reminds me of like when you have somebody else and then... You're talking in an expansive way, and sometimes the phrase will come up, you know, oh, this new report from Mr. Dithers, you know, let's spend some time and just blue sky this oh. idea, you know. The, yeah, That's sort of what we're doing right now. It's you, you just yeah. kind of uh, improvise whatever comes into your mind. You blue yeah. sky it. Isn't that right? Yeah. yeah. And then Sam, there's blue-eyed yeah. boy. Yeah, yeah. Pardon me. Yeah. Did you mention that uh, a compendium is a blue? The blue book is some sort of compendium, or did I just realize that every Webster's dictionary I've ever seen has been blue? Huh. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. I can't think of a single exception. They're they're often dark blue. 
or mm-hmm. I don't know what you'd call it a medium shade of blue, but I can't think of it. In fact, Sparrow, you have a Webster's Dictionary. Like, Can you hold it up for a minute? You were just looking no, at it. No, no, no. I no, have an American say, Heritage Dictionary. Brown. Yeah, that's a brown book. And this is black. Yeah, the Funkin Wagnalls. That's sort of the, uh, you know, poor person's Encyclopedia Britannica. That's a sort of light blue, I think. And Monica Lewinsky's blue dress, lest we forget. Oh, I forgot it was blue. Yeah, the most famous blue book is, of course, the, you know, that which was produced by the Air Force, I guess, you know, of UFO sightings. Really? That's a blue book? You know, the first... The first definition in my dictionary for Blue Book is an official list of persons in the employ of the U.S. government. There's something called Blue Fizzle. (laughs) Yeah, it's a very bad recitation. And the quote from something called College Words, he made a blue fizzle. Does that relate to blue balls or is that it? Well, blue balls could follow on a blue fizzle like yeah <laughs> blue 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 balls means like uh, you can't uh, ejaculate you um, don't blue ejaculate balls means a state of frustration colloquially yeah. i think it originally was uh, associated with gonorrhea syphilis really? gonorrhea yeah venereal diseases others oh, literally Turned your balls blue? Interesting. Yeah, in that Huffington Post um, article, in addition to being associated with um, alcohol and hallucinations experienced during the DTs, it also had a um, sexual connotation. The blues meant a slow drag, a slow dance that was uh, popular, especially in um, southern juke joints. And that there would be couples who would drink. Uh, I'm assuming this is um, in African-American culture in particular and, and do the, the pre-coital shuffle to the accompaniment of guitars. And those guitar players were called bluesmen. Like was it was, what do you call that? The kind of grinding dancing like. Yeah. And the, the, the musical form of the blues, although I, I always learned that it emerged out of the, um, the field holler. And right. Spiritual, spiritual music. But the, um, the rhythm of um, the blues guitar work um, evolved to be conducive to this uh, this physical dance that mm. had a pronounced, I guess, sexual component to it because bodies were pressing together. It must have been sultry. It sounds um, really erotic. Mm. Yeah, it was interesting about uh, Miles Davis, who, you know, is is what? I mean, you know, Miles Davis is like Orpheus or something. What was inter- One thing that was said about Miles Davis's horn is that he created music that, kind of like the Ikea bed, supposedly like <laughs> 80% of children born in the latter half of the 20th century were conceived on an Ikea bed. <laughs> And in the same way, like, people would put on a Miles Davis record. Kind of then, blue. Yeah. Yeah, and then That's make true. love to, you know, listening to Miles Davis and then making love, you know, dancing in that very mm-hmm. tight space to what Miles Davis, what came out of Miles Davis's horn, trumpet. That music is... I've, I was just talking to Alisa, my wife, about Kind of Blue, 
And I was describing it as one of the greatest compositions of music I think ever written and recorded. I mean, it, it, it's all so powerful. You mean the whole album or that song? Well, I really like that song. I like the whole album. I like listening to the whole album. Yeah, you're kind of including the whole album as a sort of masterpiece. Yes. My friend, um, Joel Shapiro, who died, I think, in November, he had, I was willed his stereo system. Oh. It's it's a top-of-the-line record player with incredible speakers from the late 80s, and it's all been restored. And um, I mean, the the sound is just incredible. Hmm. And I was listening to um, Kind of Blue on it. And um, in that three-dimensional analog sound, and it just Hmm. holy about that record. I mean, it really gets every chakra going. And you got to mention, we got to mention Coltrane and who is it? Nat Adderley? Uh, Cannibal Adderley? Which, I forget, isn't one of the Adderleys on that album? It's embarrassing to him. I met the the drummer who I think was the last survivor uh, from the original record. He was sort of a friend of a friend of mine, and he was a very kind, gentle dude. Did you meet him up around Phoenicia? I met him in uh, Teaneck, in Teaneck, New Jersey, when I lived there. I think he lived, he and his girlfriend or wife lived like near the UN, like all the way on the east side of Manhattan, kind of in uh, in Midtown, as I recall. There are a lot but of, I read yeah, somewhere that he's Manhattan he's the worst re- uh, musician on that record. But I don't know. You know, it's hard to know whether that was just cruel. I, can, I mean, you know, my ears aren't good enough to tell. I'm looking in my in this terrific dictionary, you know, of slang, and it's written here that in general, any slowly played jazz. So this idea of speed of tempo. Slowly huh. played jazz or popular music piece with sad lyrics of lost or rejected love. And then 1905, the Jelly Roll Blues, composed by Jelly Roll Morton, did it, did it, it, widely recognized as the first published jazz composition, according huh. to the list or blue book in Alan Lomax's Mr. Jelly Roll. Jelly Roll Morton wrote at least 25 songs with blues in their copyrighted title. And then uh, Lomax writes in 1956, around 1870, in the farmlands, the cotton and tobacco fields, they were already calling it the blues. Hmm. It was mostly voice, because beyond the banjo and a little drumming, there just were not the tools to make it instrumental. Wow. Mm. Yeah, so mm. it's interesting that the, the blues mostly voice, you know, that we all have the mm. capacity to speak and to sing and to be in the blues if we slow down and, um, mm. and I guess shoot for the blue note, right, Andrew? Yeah, the, the blue dis- note mean that this flattened note. Yeah. That's the that's the point of departure, right? It's it's not wrapped up in a lot of romantic fantasy of courting wholeness or mm-hmm. um, you know being in the proximity of the sublime or some prelapsarian desire. It starts in fragmentation and dissonance and offness, mm-hmm. in, in disease. That's the point of departure, and it's a uh, it's it's 
personal struggle lyrically expressed. Hmm. That lyrical expression, there's some potentially, I guess, some transformative alchemy that occurs. Yeah, it's interesting how, you know, if you juxtapose that with the actual setting up and confronting of a blue sky, like a really cloudless blue sky, Hmm. almost mocks that sense of blues because of the, I guess, the feeling of potentiality that such a visual surface seems to release or open or I don't want to say hold because that's limiting. It's really interesting observation, right? Yeah, I mean, I was going to say that before, that it seems like the wrong color for sadness, you know. I mean, if anything, if you want to be kind of literal, maybe gray, like the gray sky that hangs over uh, Phoenicia all uh, winter, seems a little more (laughs) sad than the blue sky of spring. Uh Uh-huh. Or, you know, I don't know, even, uh, I don't know what, orange maybe is a sadder color than... uh, uh-huh. Then blue. Yeah, my uh, my mom made the interesting observation regarding Homer's The Iliad. She said that, you know, sort of, you know, saying, oh, I love the Iliad. And she, I think she preferred the Iliad, actually, because of its psychology hmm. more than the Odyssey. But she said that the color of the Iliad is orange, that that's the color that, that arises out of her experience of reading like sort the of Iliad. Her, sort of the like synesthesia. Her synesthesia. That's yeah. Called, yeah, 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 right. For her, the, the Iliad is orange, just feels orange. And I think that Robert Fitzgerald translation has an orange cover. Yeah, or kind of a burnt, burnt orange. Yeah, yeah. Color. Almost a kind of... But we have not established, have we, when depression, melancholia was first referred to as blue, or the blues. I, I think you kind of nailed it with the blue devils. That was okay. a real um, insight. You know. But I don't think that refers to all depression. I think that refers to uh, uh, particularly what we now call the DTs, or anyway, what I think of as the DTs, this right. kind of uh, kind of psychosis that happens as a result of uh, withdrawing from alcohol. I don't think it, I mean, I wrote this book about Lincoln and he was depressive and he always referred to it as the hypo because he, uh, because the word then was hypochondria was the word for depression. And I know it seems ridiculous to us. And I know Samuel Johnson referred to it as the black dog. The black Mm. dog. Yeah, depression that is. The black Uh dog of depression. Yeah. And then blue also is now part of sex gender politics and right the association between blue and boyhood really masculinity uh oh is it a boy or a girl you better decorate the nursery in blue it's a boy um, yes and at the hospital when sophia was born i remember this clearly the boys had little blue caps and the <laughs> girls were the little pink caps to distinguish them, where they keep the little, uh, what are they called, incubators. Or, mm. uh-huh. So that's sort of the first distinction, which is also coincident with when you see a person, I guess, without even really thinking, often you're, you know, you, that's your first cut. Is, is that a male or a female? Mm. Yeah, yeah, Virginia held 
thing, yeah, this feminist ethicist I've, I've, I've been teaching recently wrote this um, work, maybe in the 70s, called The Sex Gender System, mm-hmm. in which she makes this claim that precisely what you're saying, that if someone is ambiguously raced or ambiguously um, classed or their ethnicity is ambiguous, that's one thing. But if, if most people who live in the binary encounter someone who is ambiguously gendered, that just like captures the attention immediately. Mm-hmm. It's the biggest transgression in a way. It's, yeah, because the, the, just the sex gender really is the first first front of identification, mm-hmm. suggesting. And also, I think, I mean, I would say, based on myself, it's the biggest source of anxiety for people. You know, I suppose there is an anxiety. Maybe I'm not really white. Am I white? But but the fear that you're not really a man. You see this person who's kind of liberated from from the binary or who has switched because the biggest whatever uh, aggression now is against transsexuals. I think they're the most hated group in society now. And the idea that someone can switch from one to another makes you worry, like, well, maybe maybe my own identity is somewhat uncertain. I think Angela Davis recently made the statement that not just, you know, trans people as being, you know, most put upon by the... I hope former sort of social structures, you know, that we were born into, you know, that are, I hope, quickly unwinding, is a black woman transitioning into like a male gender, that they're the ones that are, you know, like uh, Gregor Samsa, you know, in the center of the thousand petaled lotus, you know, they're the (laughs) ones that are the most put upon. Well, I can't. Of a single most prejudiced again. Hmm. I can't think of a single example of a narrative or an awareness of just to, to add credibility to that point of a single example of a of a black genotypically female individual transitioning to male. I can't think of an instance of that that mm-hmm. I've come across personally or in literature. Or in, you know, yeah, it's interesting. Sadly, yeah. One thing regarding this kind of profile on people that are putting other people down is another term that I found from my slang dictionary, which is blue nose, hmm. and that refers to a person with strongly puritanical moral convictions hmm. who believes that having a good time is immoral or an ultra conservative. Right. Blue Some nose. of whom are, are also blue bloods that are uh, that is aristocrats. Mm-hmm. It be a blue nose, blue blood, or a blue blooded blue inter- nose. Isn't it interesting just how broad blue is in its application? Of, yeah, it just it, it symbolizes so many different things. It's really opposite, different. even opposite things. Yeah, these opposites is a very complicated geometry. Is that true? Perhaps is that applicable to all colors? I mean, red has like a whole stable okay. of associations. Yellow. Green, uh, green, very Andy, much money, uh, fecundity, yeah, and maybe blue even more so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, somebody was saying to me yesterday, I think, about somebody. Oh yes, they're very green, and I just thought, oh, they mean they're very naive, they're very uh, youthful. They don't know, uh, you know, the 
like you speak of a rookie and the Yankees as being green, and then it turned out they meant, no, they're very environmentally conscious. Right. <laughs> like the Green Party, you know. But I think, uh-huh. I think blue might, I don't know, I suspect blue of being more wide in its meaning. It seems to be a more pervasive color. Like I can't, yellow, I can think of only really cowardice. Uh, I can't think of many other associations. Hmm. Yellow with age. Journalism. There's yellow journalism, I think. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Very, what's the word? Propagandistic or uh, prejudicial journalism. It has a racist connotation, the yellow scare. The yellow peril. You know, the yellow peril, anti-Asian bias, Mm anti-Chinese bias, right? Mm. Right. And there's the red Indians, the yellow peril. I mean, maybe we shouldn't talk about this anymore, but like blue doesn't have that. Except maybe uh, Martians, right? I think maybe uh, the little blue men. I don't know if people still say that, but they would say like... Sparrow, you're saying that blue has not been used as an expression of xenophobia. Uh, I'm not, it's not associated with a particular race. Yeah, right. Yeah. Except the race of the deceased. Oh, yeah, maybe. The blue. Yeah. I mean... You know, the blues are not just sad. I mean, I happen to be listening to the blues lately for whatever reason. I'm listening to a Sonny Terry, Brownie McGee cassette. And the last song I've been listening to is Rock Island Line. Oh, the Rock Island Line is a mighty good road. They do it really fast. Rock Island, Rock Island Line road rides. Rock Island ride. Line is a mighty good road if you want to ride it. Got to ride it like you find it because you can't find a ticket on the Rock Island Line. <laughs> you gonna miss me when I'm gone. <laughs> That's a little sad, but I mean, the song is really upbeat, and you know, there's the what they call jump blues. You know, that can be very celebratory and definitely, and you know, very just rocking, right? Elated, yeah. And well, of course, it's one of the you know origins of rock and roll. It's kind of. You can hear things that are called the blues that are more or less pure rock and roll. Yeah, I I did actually want to ask you guys, like if we had Bob among us, you know, listening in and and talking, rapping with us, what would Bob Dylan say about the nature of blue? (laughs) Tangled up in it, he would say. Yeah, I mean, he was really cut his teeth on the blues and here in the radio out of Shreveport, Louisiana, like uh, broadcasting up in, into the uh, Iron Range where he was growing up and hibbing. Um, he felt that, that he, he, he was really born out of the blues, through the womb of the blues. And he lived, I think maybe you say this in your book, Andrew, he's kind of at the other end of the Mississippi. The Mississippi, in a sense, is the river of the blues, the river that connects St. Louis, New Orleans, the river where the blues was born. And he's at the very, very northern tip of it, of this same river. So it's a kind of a metaphor in a way. It's like the blues reaches up all the way almost to Canada. And and he feels the very tip of it. And, you know, I I saw Maria Muldaur. You know Maria Muldaur? She was a kind of a famous uh, jug band singer of the 60s in the Queskin Jim Queskin drug band, and then she had a kind of a major top 40 hit in the 70s called Midnight at the Oasis. And she played recently in Woodstock, and she and um, John Sebastian, you know, from The Loving Spoonful, 
Anyway, mm. this is ancient lore now, but the two of them performed some Mississippi John Hurt song, if I remember correctly. You know, there are two people in their 70s. He's mm. on the harmonica she and the guitar, I think, and she's singing and he's singing. And it was just kind of amazing to see how the blues hit young people in 1962 who heard the blues for the first time and and what a liberation it was for them you could feel that in the in the way they sang and, and even by my generation you know I'm born in 53 I was kind of a big student of rock criticism I knew the blues was very important I tried to love the blues but I never could quite get the blues but for these people that grew up in this very white you know, Donna Reed world of of America in that 50s, early 60s, you know, the blues was like a explosion. Almost all the music of the 60s, you know, of, of young white people comes out of the blues, comes out of their delight and infatuation mm. with the blues. And Dylan, of course, being part of it. Mm. One thing that I would add is that where you and I are, Sparrow, and, and that place which is in your heart, Andrew, this place called the Catskill Mountains. They were originally called the Blue Mountains. Really? Yeah. You know, you got the White Mountains, you got the Green Mountains up north of us, but these were called the Blue Mountains. I can see why. I can see they they do have a a bluish hue when you're looking at them from afar. Like Whenever I drive up the... Um, New York State Thruway from New York City. There's always that moment, maybe around New Paltz, when I can start. I see the Catskills, and they're always blue. The outline, mm-hmm. always blue. I think so, a lot of mountains in the distance are blue. Even the Rockies, something. It's like sort of the reason the sky is blue. Maybe. Yeah, it reminds me of the tarot card of the Hermit. Are mm-hmm. you familiar with that? Um, you know, usually one associates it, or I do, with the weight deck that sort of looks slightly pre-Raphaelite kind of looking. Mm. You know, very high stylized. But the uh, the hermit is this old man holding a lantern. And then in the distance behind that old man and his lantern in this twilight mm. are the mountains. Mm. And, well, usually those mountains aren't blue. They're kind of purple. Oh. But the... Yeah, but the idea behind the hermit, the esoteric idea, is that this is the person who is holding a lantern at the entrance to the way Hmm. or the path. The initiation, kind of. Yeah, the one that's marking the entry point or the threshold Hmm. between... I guess, normative, conventional, bifurcated mm. dilemma experience to the path of self-realization. In a, in a um, Jungian universe, is, is the hermit a, the mentor figure? A mentor? Is that, are those two different? I think that makes a lot of sense, yeah. The yeah. teacher? Yeah. The, the first teacher, beyond which the pupil must journey, that the... the um, Mm-hmm. The, the mentor, the Virgil, never goes all the way. Mm-hmm. King, the journey. Right. Yeah. You know, right. just like just like uh, Dante, right? And the earthly paradise looks back, and you know, Virgil is lagged behind. He can go no further. Oh, right, because Virgil is uh, pagan. He can't. Right. 
That's right. Reach the highest truth of Christianity. Right. He leads you to the threshold. And a hermit, you don't think a hermit's as traveling. You think of them as, as sedentary, so fixed in one place. Yeah, let, dare I say, like creepily remembering our last podcast. What do you mean? When we trafficked with the hermit, Theodore Kaczynski. Oh, right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.